this this is actually the last thing I'm recording, and then I'm going to edit it. But this podcast did not turn out to be so bite-sized. Uh, I ended up talking for 40 minutes about Lord of the Rings. Uh, so we'll see how bite-sized it is uh, in my editing. Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Bite Size Pod 2. Today, uh, I wanted to talk about uh, Lord of the Rings, because we just did our uh, annual Lord of the Rings event at the Million Dollar Theater. We showed all three of Peter Jackson's uh, movies, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, Return of the King. We had almost uh, or just about 500 people there for every screening, and it was amazing. The audience was electric, and uh, it just got me to thinking about the life cycles of movies, uh, if that makes sense, in the sense of it, it, it's almost like uh, it, it, cultures or societies. There's the birth, the growth, the renaissance, the decadence, and then the decay. And it's interesting because uh, in doing the research, uh, even before J.R. Tolkien's novels, uh, there was Fritz Lang's a movie from 1924, uh, Die Nibelungen, I hope I'm saying that right, which itself was based uh, a little bit on Wagner's uh, Ring Cycle, uh, which itself was based on uh, what's often considered the German Iliad or the German Odyssey. Uh, and it's interesting to see all those influences eventually create uh, or influence J.R.R. Tolkien when he wrote the books and then influence a filmmaker like Peter Jackson to adapt the books and make what I think is maybe the best trilogy of the 21st century in terms of blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, but then also to see afterwards, like what happened to The Hobbit. Uh, and then there's an Amazon series. And now Warner Brothers is going to remake the movies or do something with the properties. And it's it's just interesting to look at that. So uh, this week's bite sized pod is going to be the life cycle of Lord of the Rings. So let's get to it. First off, thank you for being here. Uh, if you're asking yourself, what is this bite sized pod? Why do I have to listen to Craig Hamill's voice? You don't. Turn this off. Uh, throw it. I don't, don't throw anything, but you can curse my name. Uh, that being said, uh, we have been recording podcasts nonstop since March 2020. And uh, I, we thought it was high time for the team to take a, a month-long break. Do not worry. Edwin, uh, Connor, Daniel, and guests, we're all going to reconvene. Uh, June 23rd, so just a few weeks from now, with uh, Secret Movie Club Podcast 152, which is about comfort food movies with a specific eye on Cameron Crowe's We Bought a Zoo. You'll find out why. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, the next three weeks uh, are going to have Bite Size Pod 2, 3, and 4. This week, when you hear this, uh, t- today, Friday, June 2nd, tonight, come on down to the theater because it is Secret Movie Club team member Patrick McElroy's birthday, and we are showing, uh, he has guest programmed two amazing Renoir movies, Jean Renoir movies that we got on 35mm. Uh, the River, 1951's The River, and um, 1939's The Rules of the Game, both on 35mm. Uh, I've said it a lot, uh, My I, I cite a trinity of favorite directors for me and that trinity uh, in no real order um in fact i'll just go alphabetical order so you understand it's no real order is john ford akira kurosawa and jean renoir 
And uh, God willing, we are going to get to our Renoir Director of the Year series ASAP. In the meantime, whenever we get a chance to show a Renoir movie, it's always a special occasion. Uh, Then tomorrow, June 3rd, uh, we continue our Alfred Hitchcock Director of the Year. Uh, We're showing uh, two movies he made with Grace Kelly. We're doing Dial M for Murder and To Catch a Thief. And actually, Secret Movie Club team member Kim Zuckert's mom, uh, a very famous character actor. In fact, both her parents were very famous character actors in the 50s and 60s. Her dad was in everything, Bill Zuckert. And he was in Sam Fuller movies and uh, TV shows and her mom was in everything and she has a, a, a very noticeable part in To Catch a Thief so uh, Kim is going to talk about that we are going to show both uh, these movies on 35mm Monday is Ditch Day uh, we are going to show Ferris Bueller's Day Off uh, on 35mm at the Secret Movie Club Theater uh, I did a little digging and found out that Ferris Bueller's Day Off probably takes place on June 5th because of the baseball game in the movie uh, when Rooney sees uh, we actually he doesn't see but uh, Ferris and Sloan and Cameron attend a Cubs game and that game turned out to be on June 5th so we thought we'd do a ditch day the movie's going to start at 11 uh come to the theater if you just got to take a day off man like Ferris come watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off with us that's Monday June 5th uh Wednesday is our filmmaking workshop for June the scripts have already been submitted for that but if you're an actor uh, you can still sign up. Just write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, what we do that night is we bring in somebody to teach a class for 30 minutes. Uh, it's going to be a great instructor taking us a little deeper into the Meisner technique, which is great for actors and directors to know. And then uh, writers and actors will break off and prep the scenes for 45 minutes. And then we put them on for 45 minutes. You get feedback. Uh, and then Thursday, we are doing one of my favorite movies of all time, M, Fritz Lang's M, on 35 millimeter. And we're pairing that with, with Fritz Lang's 1933, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza, which is the second in his Mabuza cycle of the master German criminal Mabuza. And this is the movie that got him uh, more or less set the gears in motion uh, for him to leave Germany. Um, he made it in 1933, just before Hitler rose to power as chancellor. And he uh, endowed in Mabuza in this movie a lot of traits that Hitler had uh, as a way of critiquing uh, the creeping fascism and Nazism that was taking hold of Germany. Uh, But then when the movie was done, Hitler did come to power. He got the chancellorship. And uh, Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, called in Lang and said, look, we're banning the movie, but do you want to make movies for us because you're a great filmmaker? And Lang said, let me think about it. And uh, two or three days later, as the story goes, got on a train, left his wife, who actually stayed and worked for the Nazis, uh, came to America and made anti-fascist films. And there you go. And as always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com, see our entire schedule at secretmovieclub.com, get tickets at Eventbrite. Uh, In about two weeks, uh, roughly the 16th, I'm going to say, the 16th of June, we are going to announce, begin announcing our summer season, which is July, August, and September. Uh, So just, you know, look out. We usually post new events at 1 p.m. Pacific every day. Uh, We would love to have you. If you have suggestions, please write us. And as always, we really would love reviews. Uh, If if you do like what we do, it does really help. Uh, If you could review us, if you've come to one of our events, review us on Google or Yelp. uh, Or if you listen to this podcast, give us a review. Um, Apple or, you know, however you hear these podcasts, they go out to uh, Spotify and Apple Pod and, and we're on Podbean and yada, 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 yada. But the reviews really do, I think, help us uh, get people to find out about us. (laughs) 
today I wanted to talk about uh, the life cycle of uh, movies, uh, and I wanted to look at Lord of the Rings specifically. We do every Memorial Day weekend a Lord of the Rings marathon at the Million Dollar Theater Movie Palace, and we show all three movies in one day. And this time we showed the extended edition Fellowship, the extended edition Two Towers, and then the theatrical of uh, Return of the King. And that made the movie watching about 11 hours, uh, but we took an hour and 10 minutes in between each movie for lunch and dinner. So the whole thing clocked in at about 14 hours by the time we were done. And we had 500 people there and the audience was fire. Uh, and I, I was moved to tears. Uh, people were there for it. Uh, if you've never seen Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, it's an adaptation of the very famous J.R.R. Tolkien books uh, by the same names and the same titles, which were released in the late 40s, early 50s, and then became uh, one of the biggest publishing sensations of all time. Basically, these books uh, people thought were impossible to uh, make as movies, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. But Ultimately, uh, and you know, there were some attempts too, even before this, but uh, Peter Jackson, uh, who was still at the time not really a proven <laughs> uh, blockbuster filmmaker, got New Line Cinema uh, to buy into his idea that he could shoot all three of the movies at the same time for $60 million a movie so that New Line could get basically three movies for $180 million. And New Line thought, well, if you can bring it in at that price tag, it's worth the risk. Uh, of course, we now look back in retrospect and we're like, man, what a, you know, it's a steal. Uh, but there was actually a lot of heartache and fighting because the movies went over budget. Um, the It turned out that they probably each cost closer to 100 to $120 million a movie. Uh, and uh, no one knew if they really were going to work or not until Fellowship opened in 2001. And uh, when it did open in uh, the winter of 2001, fall of 2001, uh, it was a mega hit. And uh, the trilogy then was released one, one a year. So that 2002 was Two Towers. 2003 was Return of the King. And uh, But when all was said and done, uh, they made $3 billion. The trilogy made $3 billion. And uh, everybody came out really, really well. But Peter Jackson and his team, uh, not only uh, pulled it off from a commercial standpoint, they, they pulled it off from an artistic standpoint. Uh, you know, these movies, in my opinion, the Lord of the Rings movies, take their place alongside, uh, alongside big-budget movie making uh, like uh, David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia, like Stanley Kubrick's 2001, uh, like Steven Spielberg's Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T., uh, as these films that uh, somehow, or even James Cameron's Aliens, uh, that somehow did that thing where they appealed to everybody, or uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather, one and two, or Apocalypse Now. They appealed to a lot of people, they made a lot of money, and they are absolutely, uh, they are absolutely consummate works of art. Uh, I look at these these cats as there it is that that's that's the goal uh, a a entertainment that is a work of art uh, I would love to achieve something like that one day uh, but now with all that background what was interesting to me was thinking about how did Lord of the Rings eventually come about what were its antecedents and then it's interesting to see what has happened since. What was interesting is actually realizing that Lord of the Rings 
didn't begin with J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien himself was deeply, deeply influenced by uh, uh, many things, but specifically Germanic and Nordic mythology. Uh, there were Norse myths and uh, a Germanic uh, ballad, which is known, uh, I believe, forgive me, uh, as the Nimblingung. Uh, and uh, and it, it, you see this in world cultures, actually. And this was what was sort of a light bulb to me is in India, there are the, there's the uh, Mahabharata and the Ramayana. They're two great epics, uh, which, although they don't really fit this, you could think of them as the Iliad and the Odyssey, but they're different. And they, you know, they don't go together. They're about different characters. But I, I'm obsessed with the Mahabharata and the, the Ramayana. Uh, in China, there are works like uh, The Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Journey to the West, both of which I highly recommend. Uh, in the West, I've already alluded to it, but there's Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Uh, and in Germany, there was the Nimblingung, and in uh, Norse mythology, there were other ballads. And uh, so really, this goes back to medieval times, uh, and I'm sure if you look at it, these were stories that were being told. Uh, you know, you could probably find iterations of them going back thousands of years. So, so in a weird way, these stories have been burnished and polished and road tested by storytellers for thousands of years, which maybe should make you humble about the idea that you could do something like this because you're, you know, ultimately Lord of the Rings, by the time it got to the screen, uh, it had been, the story had been cracked (laughs) and, uh, sort of crowdsourced. And worked out across 5,000 years. Uh, So maybe you got to find that. But um, anyway, uh, so you had these ballads. And then uh, folks like the German composer Wagner, who I'm very conflicted about because I'm Jewish, uh, and he wrote a lot of anti-Semitic literature and yada yada. You can look into it. Wagner wrote Ride of the Valkyries, which is the song they play on the helicopters in Apocalypse Now. And he wrote The Ring Cycle, this amazing uh, opera cycle, um, which was based on these Germanic ballads. And uh, then from that, uh, filmmaker Fritz Lang uh, and his wife, Thea von Harbaugh, uh, in 1924, uh, made uh, two movies that were an adaptation of the Nimblingung uh, called Nimblingung uh, Part 1, Siegfried's Death, and then Nimblingung Part 2, um, Krimhelda's Revenge. I hope I'm saying that right. And what's interesting, uh, when you watch them, and I'm watching them now, so I, I haven't gotten through them, and I... I I wish I had because maybe I'd have more to tell you. But even where I'm at right now in part one, it's fascinating to see because Siegfried, uh, he meets this. The Nimblingung are like elves that live in caves and hoard treasures. And he catches one. And he this uh, Nimblingung has a crown that it can put on its head that makes it invisible. And he gets that crown. And then the Nimlingung uh, tries to uh, sort of uh, outsmart him or outfox him, but Siegfried is a match for him, and he goes into the cave, and he gets, uh, you know, this thing that makes him invisible, and he gets a sword. So in a weird way, you're like, oh, <laughs> that's like the ring from Lord of the Rings that makes you invisible, the ring of power, and the Nimbling, Lim, Nimblingung is like Gollum in a way. But Siegfried is not really like Frodo or Sam or Bilbo, the hobbits, at all. And and in fact, Siegfried isn't even like Strider uh, or Aragorn. Um, Siegfried, at least in Fritz Lang's uh, movie, he's very bold, he's very young, he's very brave, but he's also sort of cocksure and cocky. Uh, and it's he's actually, I'm finding, not the most... Uh, empathetic of characters he's not unsympathetic he's not 
bad, but it's like a different kind of speed. He, he's just young and bold. Uh, whereas the hobbits are very humble, and and I think Tolkien's uh, changes, uh, I, you have to say, are like really, really, really smart for making empathetic uh, main characters. But anyway, Fritz Lang makes this, and these movies are incredible. These Fritz Lang movies, you got to see them. And uh, many people cite them as some of the first big budget blockbuster fantasy sci-fi filmmaking that just galvanized audiences around the world. And they're not watched as much anymore because they run four and a half hours interestingly J.R. Tolkien who fought in World War One uh, was a professor in England uh, Catholic uh, and obsessed with Celtic mythologies and songs and languages he writes a children's book called The Hobbit which is just one book uh, in 1937 it's a huge hit and his publishers want him to write The Hobbit too <laughs> so that's sort of interesting to see how this all works. And he spends years on it, and it grows, and he uses a bunch of things that he had written uh, for something he called the Cimmeril or the Cimmerillion. But the publishers never wanted the Cimmerillion because the Cimmerillion was more like songs and a cycle and, and Ur mythology, origin mythology, and they just didn't feel like it came together as a story. Uh, ultimately, the Cimmerillion was published posthumously by Tolkien's son. But uh, Tolkien took some things he had created there, he took The Hobbit, specifically Bilbo and the Ring. He originally envisioned The Hobbit 2 as being about another adventure that Bilbo has. But um, he worked on it, worked on it, and it just grew so big that he eventually realized it was going to be three books, Lord of the Rings. And he really took The Ring from The Hobbit. Uh, and if you've never read The Hobbit or seen The Hobbit, basically in The Hobbit, uh, this ho uh, Hobbit Bilbo goes on an adventure with Gandalf and some dwarves and elves, uh, and eventually matches wits with a dragon called Smog. But along the way, he meets this creature Gollum, and he gets a ring, Bilbo gets a ring, that makes him invisible. Uh, and uh, Gollum loves the ring and is furious that Bilbo gets the ring from him. Uh, in Lord of the Rings, uh, Bilbo reappears, but only as a fairly minor character, who uh, basically his nephew Frodo... Uh, what it, what it turns out is that the ring has been developed uh, really by this evil lord, kind of like Satan, um, named uh, Sauron, who uh, basically uh, it's a it's a trick, and everybody wants the ring because they it's a ring of power that can control all of Middle Earth, but really only one person can control it, and that's Sauron, the Dark Lord. And so the really smart, good, wise people know that the only thing you can do with the ring is try to destroy it uh, and make sure it doesn't get back to Sauron. And because the hobbits uh, don't want power and they're so fun loving and peaceful, uh, their Gandalf, who appears uh, in both the Wizard, he and other wise people feel like in trust to the hobbits but now the hobbits have to get to uh, Mordor which is the land of evil and go to Mount Doom where the ring was forged and destroy it in the volcano of Mount Doom and if they do that then they're going to destroy Sauron anyway uh, so Col Tolkien comes up with this huge story realizes now he's got this epic on his hands uh, borrows from these things before and uh, he writes The Lord of the Rings, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, and Return of the King, that tells this epic story of, of Frodo and his friend Sam, both hobbits, and this fellowship of human beings, one of them being Aragorn or Strider, who's this uh, long-lost king, uh, and uh, you know this dwarf 
uh, Gimli and this elf Legolas and other humans and wizard Gandalf and other hobbits, Merry and Pippin. And uh, they all uh, go on this near impossible task as Sauron, the evil lord, is gaining power again. Gollum reappears and wants the ring. And it's just this epic journey. Uh, So he writes these books. They're incredible because they get at as captivating as they are and the sequences are, and they're just so many amazing sequences. Uh, Also, I think the basic metaphor that, and it was funny when we showed the movies, everybody clapped when uh, Sam, the one of the hobbits, uh, probably the most good hearted in some ways, just uh, Samwise Ganji says that a, a person, no matter how small, you know, can make a difference. Or Frodo maybe says that. And Sam just says that there's good in the world and it's worth fighting for. Uh, And I think that these messages, and even though Tolkien, you know, it's funny, Tolkien um, always denied that the books were really influenced by World War II and the rise of fascism because he had started work on them decades before. And I get why he said that. And maybe in his own mind, he really believed that. But it's really hard because the Lord of the Rings actually was published in the 50s. And he worked on it through World War II. So it's really hard <laughs> to just think that World War II didn't influence him because you really start to see Sauron um, as a metaphor for fascism because humans and wizards, uh, a lot of the other creatures decide to ally with Sauron because they feel like they can't fight it and it's uh, the road to power. And then there's this alliance fellowship of all these creatures who ally and say, no, we got to fight it. And you feel like they're, they're fighting for democracy and free speech and they're not, they're anti-totalitarian and anti-fascist. You can, I think you can absolutely read it that way. And probably it's just universal. This fight has been happening, you know, probably for all of human history uh, in cycles. So I think it resonates with us because of that. And maybe Tolkien just wanted to really assert that this was uh, universal. Anyway, the books come out, they're huge hits. Um, One of the first people to try to adapt them into a movie were the Beatles, who I think, if we're being frank, were probably, you know, thinking, reading Lord of the Rings while they were doing mind-expanding drugs. Uh, And the Beatles wanted to make a film version of it with Paul as Frodo, George as Gandalf, John as Gollum, and I think Ringo as Samwise Ganji. And they they saw 2001 and they thought the only person who could make it was Stanley Kubrick. And the story goes that Stanley Kubrick was like, this it's impossible to adapt this. There are just not the effects to do what you want here. You know, battles with hundreds of thousands of different kinds of creatures and, you know, these cave trolls and this Gollum being creature. And, uh, you know, it just, it just, it, it would cost a billion dollars. You can't do it. And uh, the Beatles ultimately made other albums and broke up and decided not to do it. Um, In the 70s, Saul Zantz, a producer uh, who uh, produced uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I believe, uh, but definitely Amadeus, Unbearable Lightness of Being, uh, Saul Zantz had the rights. And um, Zantz came out of music, interestingly. He had produced like Creedence Clearwater Revival and stuff and had a lot of money. And uh, he, he had the rights to the Tolkien books. Uh, and, uh, I believe he licensed them to Ralph Bakshi and a Hobbit was made, uh, an animated Hobbit. And that seemed like a way to get around it. Well, we'll animate it. You know, you, you can do anything in animation. And, uh, there was, I think fellowship and part of two towers got made, but they never finished it. I, I believe there's no return of the King. Those movies didn't completely work. And, and it was an admirable attempt and they're great to watch. And Ralph Bakshi, who, you know, started making the X rated Fritz the cat and then made a bunch of really trippy, amazing uh, 70s and 80s um, animated movies that were really geared for adults. Um, 
uh, he, they didn't completely take off. Then there was this rights battle that I'm going to ellipse. Uh, for a while, the Weinsteins had the rights to it, and Peter Jackson was trying to sell the Weinsteins that he could do two movies, and uh, he was going to end the first movie with Helm's Deep, uh, and it was going to be a condensation of the three books into two movies. And then that didn't work out, and then Harvey Weinstein uh, basically was going to, like— uh, Peter Jackson pitched it to New Line, uh, and they went for it, and they they were willing. But you know, uh, I think it's Bob Shea and Michael DeLuca. They uh, were like, "We're going to take a chance on this." Uh, and and then, like I said, Peter Jackson sold them that he could do them for sixty million a movie, shoot them all at the same time in New Zealand, uh, and uh, that got greenlit. <laughs> They were delighted because now they could really adapt the three books uh, rather than really condensing, condensing. And uh, and then they made the movies. And what's interesting uh, is that, you know, they did a really good job at the time the movies came out of putting a good face uh, on the experience. But actually behind the scenes, and now everyone's been much more open about it, Peter Jackson was miserable. And uh, I, I can kind of understand when you put your whole soul, I have this theory Sometimes that when you put your whole soul into a movie, uh, sometimes, you know, that's <laughs> that's the that's the thing you're going to be remembered for. And you never want to put yourself through it again. Uh, sometimes you can. Sometimes you can't. Uh, you know, when you look at the great directors and some of their greatest films, uh, you hear about the miseries that happen uh, behind the scenes. Um, Spielberg notoriously has been upfront that he had a nervous breakdown on Jaws. They were threatening to fire him the whole time. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola broke down and cried every single day, uh, he said, or near every single day of The Godfather because everyone gave him a bad time. Um, and then the movie became The Godfather. And the movie became Jaws. And Peter Jackson, uh, there's a very famous story uh, where he was filming the Helm's Deep sequence and New Line Furious at the cost overruns uh, sent a producer in person to walk up to Peter Jackson at the top of the Helm's Deep set, which was in a mine quarry. And Peter Jackson was like hundreds of feet up. And he could see this this guy walking up the steps to him. And the guy gets to the top of the steps and he says, look, I got a phone here and uh, New Line is suing you because you're going over budget. And Peter Jackson, you know, he had the presence of mind. And I, I think this was the right move. But man, did it take brass to do this? Uh, just to think about the stress you'd feel hearing that a studio was suing you. Uh, Peter Jackson said, look, I'm not taking that call. You go right back down those steps. I'm doing my best to make a good movie. And if I keep getting interrupted like this, this movie's never going to get made. Um, and uh, the guy walked back down. Peter Jackson didn't take the call. Uh, he finished the movies. Um, and supposedly what really, really saved everybody and brought the temperature down was Peter Jackson and New Line uh, debuted the 20 Minutes of Fellowship at the Cannes Film Festival in 2001. And what they debuted was the Minds of Moria sequence with the Balrog, the fire Balrog. I mean, it's one of the great sequences of this, this series. And uh, distributors and exhibitors around the world saw it and they were like, oh, my goodness, this is incredible. Uh, and then uh, everybody wanted it, and I think the studio felt a little better. They were like, ah, we're going to be able to get this out into the world, and Peter Jackson felt better. And then the movie came out, was a monster hit. And then, uh, But what was also interesting was that even then, uh, I found out, and I never knew this, Peter Jackson was constantly, Peter Jackson and his team were constantly rewriting, uh, reshooting, doing pickups, 
you know, they, they saw how Fellowship played and they tweaked Two Towers a little bit. Then they saw how Two Towers played and they tweaked uh, Return of the King. So even though they say that they shot it all at the same time, they actually were shooting the movie all the way through 2003 um, and adjusting it and adapting it and road testing it. And that, you know, Peter Jackson said it, that was eight years of his life. And the whole time he was... Uh, fighting and trying to make it work and getting beat up on from all corners and basically inventing his own industry in New Zealand. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, his ridiculous talent, the talent of everybody in that movie, on that movie, uh, you know, it produced what I think uh, to this day is probably was the marriage of practical effects and digital effects. They had costumes. They had prosthetic makeup. They had models. Uh, they did miniature work, along with amazing CGI like Gollum. Uh, and it's just incredible. Uh, so these movies come out. The monster hits. And uh, the, they, the studio naturally wants to do The Hobbit. Let's do The Hobbit. Uh, and originally that was going to go to Guillermo del Toro, uh, which I think would have been amazing. I think Peter Jackson wanted, you know, like Francis Ford Coppola, <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola wanted Martin Scorsese to direct Godfather 2 originally. And the studio was like, no. And I think the studio pulled some power plays with Jackson and said, look, we're going to shoot. This is what I've heard. They said, if you don't do this movie, uh, we're going to shoot it in America. So, and Peter Jackson, I think, because I've heard Peter Jackson is very good hearted and, you know, he created an industry in New Zealand. I mean, he's a national hero. Uh, he didn't want to lose all that work for New Zealand. So he took it on. And then, of course, the studio was basically like, you know, we want Lord of the Rings again. And if you've read The Hobbit, it's not Lord of the Rings. It's a kid's book that really should have been if we're just talking artistically and I'm not trying to be pie in the sky. It should have been one movie, um, you know, maybe one two hour movie, two and a half hour movie. But I don't even think it needed to be that. I think it could have sung it one two-hour movie but Peter Jackson makes the Hobbit movies and he makes three of them and they incorporate a lot of the Cimmerillion um and uh you know they're not as well regarded as uh Lord of the Rings and I think what what's interesting to me is to see this thing and I think you see it with Star Wars I think you see it with Marvel I think you see it with James Bond I think you see it with any uh money-making property there comes a point where uh, or Indiana Jones, which I, it kills me to say because the Indiana Jones, the first three movies are three of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and um, Raiders is, I think, a perfect movie. Uh, and one of my big inspirations, along with Lord of the Rings, were kind of filmmaking I'd love to aspire to one day, uh, even though I know I'd have, I don't have 1% of the talent of Spielberg or Jackson or James Cameron. Um the but uh you know I, I don't know how much Peter Jackson's heart was in the Hobbits, uh because I think that he, you can see if you look at the history he he kind of wanted someone else to do them, uh maybe knowing the fights that were ahead and and yada yada and so he gets out the Hobbit movies, and um since then he has you know he's done these amazing documentaries they shall not be forgotten and the the Beatles get back documentary um but. You know, even after the Hobbit movies, which also made three billion dollars, excuse me, the Hobbit movies made three billion dollars. So um, from a commercial point of view, they were just as successful as the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, then uh, Amazon just did a ring series uh, and I which I think sort of elaborated on parts of the Cimmerillion and the, the build up to what would become the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And now uh, just Warner Brothers just announced uh, within a few weeks of the recording of this uh, podcast 
Uh, and because, uh, interestingly, um, Mike DeLuca, I think, who was there at New Line uh, back way back when, when they okayed Lord of the Rings, he's now at Warner Brothers, and uh, they uh, are going to remake Lord of the Rings or tell stories in the Lord of the Rings universe. You know, they're doing the, the expanded universe, cinematic universe thing with Lord of the Rings. But what's interesting is, and I'll leave you with this, is societies, almost no society has been able to escape the cycle of birth, growth, renaissance, decadence, death. But then there's rebirth. And that's the thing I didn't say at the beginning is there's rebirth. And I don't know if that rebirth is uh, the rebirth of the same society, uh, but it's a society that comes out of that society. And, you know, with Lord of the Rings, and no one's going to take away Lord of the Rings ever. That's always going to exist, those movies, and Peter Jackson's uh, accomplishment with those three movies, which I think in some ways is the apotheosis of the the Lord of the Rings uh, material in the cinematic world, at least so far. I, you know, I'm an optimist, and I would never say never. Someone may do something with the material that blows us all away. Um, but maybe the the rebirth of it will be filmmakers uh, who see Lord of the Rings and they adapt another property or they write an original property. Uh, and from Lord of the Rings and what Peter Jackson and his team accomplished, something new comes out. Uh, I, I always, I think in a, in a too idealistic way, want to believe that you can avoid the cycle of decadence and death, the latter part of it. But I'm, I, I think the pragmatist in me just says you can't. And, and, you know, you also have to accept, even if you don't like to accept it artistically, that even in the decadent and uh, the death period, death spiral period of a property, uh, it is, they are employing thousands of people. They're giving work to thousands of people uh, and uh, things are being de designed and invented. And there is an empirical good to that. Uh, even if artistically there's diminishing returns. And so maybe in a Zen way, uh, a Taoist way, you have to accept the Tao, you have to accept the way, you have to accept the cycle, uh, understand that that is the cycle. But know when you're in the decadent and the death spiral part of it that there's going to be a rebirth uh, and then a growth and a renaissance again. And, and then there's your light uh, and the ebb and flow of creativity. So I'm going to end there. Thank you for listening. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, you can find out about everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at eventbrite at secretmovieclub.com. And um, thank you so much. Bite Size Pod 3 will come out next week, and then there'll be Bite Size Pod 4, and then we'll be back to our regular programming. Thank you so much. Happy start to your summer, Secret Movie Clubbers. And if you like what we do, please rate us. It helps. Okay. Uh, and I, I hope all of us, because I do feel more and more in the world, the powers of Sauron growing again. I hope, uh, I hope all the hobbits and good wizards and, and people and elves and dwarves, uh, I hope uh, we all align, create a new fellowship uh, and, uh, and fight, fight some of the, the evil that's coming out of Mordor again in our own world. All right, take care, Secret Movie Clubbers. Talk to you soon. I love you, family.